speaking is that uh, I want to be preaching on our value of anointed worship, and we wanted to save some time at the end to respond uh, with more worship. So we will be singing a little more at the end than we normally did. Does that make sense? We just move some from the beginning to the end. Are you guys awake? All right. I know it's like uh, one in the afternoon. The Eagles don't play today, right? They do. Oh, it was last week they didn't play. Well, they probably won't play today, so... I'm just glad that a lot of my salary comes from outside of the church. I can just say whatever I want a lot of weeks. Um, Okay. Well, let me uh, let me get started with this. Uh, Some of you you all know my wife, or most of you know my wife, right? Raise your hand if you know at least who she is. Little redheaded lady. before I got married, she used to work at a fast food restaurant called Wendy's. She was the mascot. And she would stand out in front. They still have used her picture on all their literature. Uh, her dad is a guy, uh, he's a clown. His name was Ronald McDonald. And just kidding. But she's a redhead, so that's why I make those jokes. My wife and I this summer just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. Thank you. You should really be clapping for her. It's been easy for me. It's been a real ordeal for her. But uh, we have known each other since, I think, 1997. We met in Sunday school in 10th grade. It's the best thing. I always say she's the best thing I ever got out of Sunday school. I got a wife out of it. And a couple other things, too. But we've been married for 10 years. And during that 10 years, I've had to learn some very important lessons. One of the things that I've had to learn is how to love her the way she wants to be loved, as opposed to loving her the way that I want to love her. So the way that I want to love my wife is like watching some sort of superhero movie, then maybe watching football and eating chicken wings, and then uh, other things that I'm not going to talk about, if you know what I mean. But that sounds like an excellent weekend to me. What she would rather do is watch like Gilmore Girls and eat cheesecake. I can get behind the cheesecake part. Uh, I can't get behind the Gilmore Girls. Or she also, the first year of our marriage, we watched all 10 seasons of Friends. She's such a Rachel. Um, So... I have to learn and have been learning and have more to learn about loving her the way that she wants to be loved. I know that she would rather watch TV and eat cheesecake than watch sports and eat chicken wings. I know that she likes flowers. Not only does she like flowers, she likes Gerber daisies. So when when I buy her flowers, I don't just buy a random assortment of flowers. I go and get Gerber daisies specifically. And because she likes those, I only have to buy like three or four. I don't have to get a whole dozen. It's great. Uh, Well, it works. Um, I know that she likes to sleep and that she likes to sleep in. I also know that she is a light sleeper and that if I even have a dream about waking up, she wakes up. And that if I'm coming home late, I might as well sleep on a couch because if I try to get in bed, she'll wake up and she'll be up. Um, so I, I'm learning and have learned and I'm still learning how to love my, my wife. There she is. Speak of the devil. Uh, how to love my wife the way that she likes to be loved. 
So this afternoon, we're going through this uh, series of what our church values, and today we're talking about anointed worship. I think that anointed worship is worshiping God the way he wants to be worshiped, or loving God the way that God wants to be loved. Now, it might um, stretch you. Last week, this, this idea that not all prayer is good prayer stretched some of you. Uh, with Sonomi, it really stretched them, and I've had people actually all week asking me if I really meant that, and I did really mean that. And I'm going to say something similar today. Not all worship is good worship. That there is actually a place in the Old Testament where the people were singing loudly with their hearts, uh, sorry, singing loudly with their mouths, but that their hearts were far from God, and God actually said, just stop. It's annoying to my ears, and it's a stench in my nostrils. And he said, stop singing, close up the doors of the temple. What you're doing right now does not please me. So there's actually a kind of worship that did not please um, God. And you might also remember King Saul in the Old Testament. God said to go into uh, the Amalekites' camp and kill everything. And Saul said, well... I'll kill almost everything, but I'm going to take some animals back and sacrifice them to God. And God's response was, that's not what I said. What I said was kill everything, not save a few things and worship me on your terms. Which was, that was part of Saul's problem. In fact, that's actually the reason that Saul had, Saul was the king at that point. The reason that he had to stop being king was that. That he chose to worship God on his terms instead of worshiping God on God's terms. So anointed worship is very much about learning to love God the way that God wants to be loved. So if we read the Bible, there's a ton of stuff in the Bible that tells us how God likes to be worshipped. So we might as well just use that to inform the way that we worship. Does that make sense? Now, I want to I teach you just a little bit about worship. I don't want to define worship so much as I want to describe it. I have a couple different ways to describe it. Uh, the first is I have a definition from our church website. If you can go through the slides for me, Nate, real quick. Keep going. That's just a random baby. Um, there. That's great. This is the definition of anointed worship from our church's website. This is how we explain it to those that are inquiring. We view worship as a lifestyle, and we seek to lead others into worshipful lifestyles. We endeavor for our worship to be anointed and led by the Holy Spirit, and to be a significant way to encounter the presence of God. So this is from our church's website. We view worship as a lifestyle. Now, most people, many people, Christians, refer to worship as what we do on Sunday morning. And that is true. We do gather to worship on Sunday mornings. And I'm not suggesting that you not use that term for what we do on Sunday mornings, because it is still accurate. But there is, there is something to worship that it also applies to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. A.W. Tozer, before his death, said, if you don't worship God seven days a week, you probably don't worship him one day a week. That if there's not six other days or seven days in total that are fueling your worship for God, then probably on Sunday what you're doing is not really worship. It's probably some sort of religious routine or something to absolve you of some sort of religious guilt. It might be a habit, it might be a ritual, but it's probably not worship. Now I found in my life that that is pretty true, that 
If I worship God the other six days of the week, by the time I get to the service on Sundays, there's more oomph behind it. Does that make sense? I don't know what the technical term for that is, but there's momentum. You know, if, if I'm spending time the other days of the week, even if it's not perfect, because I, I'll tell you, there are days that I just don't. Either, you know, like, I don't know, there's a day this week that Aiden woke up at like 5.30. Kids don't care about daylight savings, I found. My kids were up, up early, so I just went to the church at 7 in the morning and slept in the church office. So that day, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really spend a lot of time with the Lord. I was just trying to survive that day. And uh, so I'm not saying, and I'm not trying to get, give you the idea that like I have this down, but I have found that when I spend time throughout the week worshiping God, there is more power behind my experience on Sunday. Now, what we do on Sunday is different from what we do as individuals the other days of the week, because what we do on Sunday is called corporate worship. It's all of us coming together, singing the same songs at the same times, and that is totally different than like you alone in your room, or you alone in your car, or wherever else you get the opportunity to worship. The dynamics are different, the purpose is different, the whole experience is different. Does that make sense? You follow me? It's, uh, it's kind of like when a football team, when, when all the players on their own eat healthy, sleep well, lift weights, practice, and then when they come together on Sunday as a team, they are better. So if we as a group throughout the week can worship God, and then we come together on Sunday, there's a lot of momentum. It's kind of like a, like a rocket ship taking off, and there's power behind it. So it is a lifestyle. It is not just something that we do for a set period of time on Sundays or during our discipleship groups, but it is a lifestyle. Worship is not only music, okay? But I will admit that today I'm pretty much talking about music, okay? It's, it's, it's far more than music, but since most of us see it as music, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go that direction because I think that it connects with the most people. Now, there are different types of worship. Not all worship is the same. Let me illustrate it with this. In the winter, you ready for the winter? It's coming. Sorry. In the winter, there are these things, when it snows and melts, there are these sharp things that hang off of your porch or your house. What are those called? Icicles, right. And if you stare at them, they'll land in on your eye and stab your eye, right? Okay, when you have a cold drink, you put this little block in it to keep it cold. What is that? Ice cube. Wow, you guys are on point today. Uh, when you're driving in the winter and ice uh, has frozen on the street and you can't see it at night, what is that called? Black ice, right. So that's three different terms for the same thing, right? Ice is ice is ice. Ice, ice, baby. Uh, I heard you, Sharon. Yeah. Sharon's heyday was the 90s. Uh, so um, there's three different terms for ice. We could probably come up, there's dry ice, right? There's crushed ice. Ice in its various forms. You know, Eskimos actually have 60 words for ice. Because, why is that? Because they're surrounded by it. When you're surrounded by something, you learn about the subtleties and the little nuances, right? So they have one word for the kind of ice that crunches under your feet. 
They have another word for like the hard kind of ice that's just slippery. Glaciers have another, uh, they have another word for that. The kind of snow or ice they might use to build an igloo, they have another word for that. Uh, so they have 60 different terms for ice because they're so acquainted with ice that they understand all the little nuances and they create new terms for each variation of ice. I tell you that to story, to not to, not to get you ready for the winter, but to say that there are different kinds of worship as well. Okay, so when I was a young believer, I just thought singing to God was worship, and that's it. That was the only category that I had. I'm telling you that there, there are more categories. So the first I would refer to like the book of Psalms, that that's a type of worship. I would call it like the psalmisty type, or uh, psaltery is actually, I think, the real word for it. But the book of Psalms, the kind of worship in the book of Psalms is very different from the kind of worship in the book of Revelation, but they're both still worship, and one is not better than the other, although I have a preference. But the book of Psalms is very, if you read the Psalms, it's very emotional. It's David and the other writers of Psalms just kind of like dealing with their emotions. And they start off, honestly, sounding like a bunch of whiny little babies but then by the end of the psalm, they're praising God. So that kind of worship is a way to bring your soul and your emotions and your thoughts into alignment with God. You start off kind of like, ah, my enemies hate me and I'm embarrassed and I feel like I'm unsafe. But eventually David always gets it to the point where he's praising God. So that is a helpful, useful form of worship. There's also intercession as a form of worship. We try to do this on Saturday nights at our prayer meeting. It's where you're mingling worship in with prayer, and you're actually asking God for something. You're making requests to God. Uh, I've found that we often, that works its way into our worship without us even knowing it. It's such a, such a part of our experience. There's also warfare worship. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that number one, Israel usually put the, not usually, but often, put the musicians in front of the army when they went into battle. You know, that's, that's come, come a long way. Now they get like special green rooms and like whatever kind of bottled water they want. Uh, but the musicians, in many cases in the Old Testament, stood in front of the army as they went into battle and they worshipped their way into battle. And there is a, there is a kind of worship that is militant, if you know what that word means. Uh, and it's a kind of worship that advances us in spiritual warfare. And I found, just my own experience, is that the tempo is usually like stomping your foot. It just, that music just kind of tends to, to sound and feel like that. It's kind of militant, um, and it's also useful, and it's biblical. Then we get to this, this kind of worship that I want to focus on today. I call it throne room worship. It's different from the Psalms, it's different from intercession, it's different from uh, warfare worship. It is the kind of worship that is taking place right now around the throne of God, even as you sit there and I stand here. It's happening right now. It's throne room worship is, is what I want to talk about today. Two particular places in scripture that I want to show you. One of them is uh, Isaiah 6. So if you can go, Nate, to the next slide. This is really simple. This is Isaiah. Um, we're six chapters into, into the book of Isaiah. And he has this experience with God that's like completely unique. 
at, for that time, and it's kind of wild, and I doubt many or any of us have ever experienced anything like this. But Isaiah either gets spiritually transported or has a vision, I'm not sure which. But anyway, this is the experience that he writes about in Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, so this is about 750 years before Jesus was born. Okay? Everybody got that. So this is, is this before or after Jesus' birth? Before, about 750 years, so quite a while, almost 20 generations. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two wings he covered his feet, and with two wings he flew. And one seraphim called out to another seraphim and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So I want to I talk through this a little bit. You're going to have to use your imagination here. In fact, some of you might even need to close your eyes and picture what I'm talking about, but I will say this. You can close your eyes, but if I hear you snoring, you will find out that these boots that I'm wearing are steel-toed for a reason. All right. So if you need to picture this with your, with your, in your mind's eye, please do that. So Isaiah is having this, uh, this vision. In the vision, he sees God sitting on a throne. So picture that. God is sitting on a throne. Lofty and exalted just means that this is something spectacular. He's not sitting on like a, th like a Game of Thrones throne in the middle of like a dirty room. This is like some sort of spectacular, uh, fantastic place. And that God is lofty and exalted. The train of his robe, so like the, the, the leftover material of his robe is filling the temple. Filling, it's that big of a robe. It's that majestic of a thing. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. So, this is another nice little category for you. There are, a seraphim is an angel, and there are actually different types of angels. So, the seraphim, there are seraphim, there are cherubim, there are archangels, and there's probably a few that I'm not even, don't even know about, but you need to know that not all angels are the same kinds. They serve different purposes, they look different, they act different. They, just like there's different kind of people and different kinds of animals. So this is a seraphim, and, uh, or seraph is the, is the singular, seraphim is plural. Okay, so there's more than one of whatever these are. So many, multiple seraphims stood above the Lord. Each one had how many wings? Six. Okay, what are, what are they doing with the six wings? Two wings are covering their faces. Two wings covering the feet. I can't touch my feet anymore. And then the other two wings, they're flying, right? Everybody got that from verse 2? Right, okay. So just picture this. This is a crazy-looking situation right here. And then one seraphim called out to another. So here again, we know that there's more than one, right? Called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So start off with this. I don't know if they sang it or they said it. It doesn't really matter. In any, in any occasion, they, they state, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And then it says, the foundations of the thresholds trembled. So think of like the ground underneath you shaking at the, at the sound of this angel's voice. That it's so thunderous that, that the threshold and the, the floor is shaking. And the temple is filling with smoke. Can you picture this in your head? This is like an Indiana Jones type scene right here. Or like a Star Wars type situation. I mean, like beings and creatures that we don't even have a, a paradigm for. And, and there's God is sitting on a... Th- it's just like this is a wild, wild scene. And this is what is happening in the throne room. And Isaiah is seeing this, and I don't have it up on the screen, and I'm not really going to get into it, but it's immediately after this when Isaiah basically says, oh, I'm dead. Like, he sees that, and he just like, he actually says, woe is me. I am undone. And that's, it's from this experience that Isaiah becomes a prophet. In response to this, he becomes a prophet. He says, my lips are unclean, and the angel takes a burning coal out of a fire and touches his lips with the burning coal and purifies his mouth. And then from that point on, Isaiah is able to speak for God because he has this experience. Pretty crazy, right? This is a true story, by the way. I'm not saying that it's normal, but this is not a metaphor. There are metaphors in the Bible. There's poetry in the Bible. The way Isaiah wrote this, this really happened to him. Okay, this isn't just like a dream he had or some sort of fantastical idea he wrote up. This actually happened to him. Everybody solid here on this. All right, good. Let me go then to the next passage, which is Revelation 4. This is one of my favorite passages. You've probably heard me teach on it half a dozen times, actually. Immediately, Oh, sorry, let me back up and give some context here. So this is written by the Apostle John while he's essentially in exile. He's on house arrest on an island called Patmos. So uh, this is written about 60 years after Jesus died. So that means that this is written about 850 years after Isaiah wrote what he wrote. How many years between? 850. All right, great. So John has this experience where he is taken up in a whirlwind. And again, I don't know if this is a vision he had or he was actually literally taken there, but he has this experience. It says, immediately I was in the Spirit. Capital S Spirit means what? Holy Spirit. Not his own spirit, but the Holy Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Any of this sound familiar? Okay. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Those are both precious gemstones. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So this is not like a rainbow that you've seen. This is an emerald rainbow, like a Lucky Charms type. And No, they didn't have emerald rainbows in Lucky Charms. Uh... Around the throne were 24 other thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden, with golden crowns on their heads. So there's a throne, there's a being sitting on the throne who's majestic, 
Uh, that person has a rainbow around them, a green rainbow. Around that throne, there's 24 other thrones with people sitting on those. Those people that, that are elders, they have crowns on their heads. Go to the next slide. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like that of a man, the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings. Where have we heard this before? Have you heard about any creatures that had six wings recently? Okay, good. They're full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So let's look at this really quickly. From Isaiah, you might, you might remember from Isaiah's experience, what was, what was trembling in the, in the room? The floor, like the foundations of the thresholds, it says, that were trembling. Now, when, when John writes, he says, there's thunder. Do you think that, and the foundation was trembling at the sound of the voice of the seraphim. Now, John writes that there's thunder. I look at this the way we look at the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all witnessed the same things, but they wrote it the way they saw it. So Matthew and John were at the same parties, the same events, but Matthew wrote it the way he saw it, and John wrote it the way he saw it. I think, let me just give away the surprise ending here. I think Isaiah and John saw the same throne room, the same things. They just wrote it from their perspective. So Isaiah wrote, I saw someone sitting on a throne with a bunch of creatures with six wings. And the, the foundation was rumbling because of the sound of a voice. John is writing, there was thunder and I saw a throne and there were creatures with six wings. Isaiah said that the room was filling with smoke. John says there were seven lamps of fire burning. Do you think having burning lamps might help the room fill with smoke? Maybe. I think they're in the same place. Not at the same time, because how many years passed in between? That, yeah, right on, 850 years. But I think they both got to the throne room. And I think they're giving us a nice picture of exactly what is happening right now as God is being worshipped on the throne. So it says, there are four living creatures. The first looked like a lion, the second like a calf or an ox. The third had the face of, like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like an eagle. It says each one of them had six wings. I bet, I bet two wings were in front of their eyes, two were in front of their feet, and with two they flew, right? If you use Isaiah's description here. And they're full of eyes, outside or around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That's even the same basic song that Isaiah heard, right? I mean, it's a little different. This might be like verse 2. But it's basically the same song that Isaiah heard. Now, let me talk a little bit about those living creatures. Because these guys fascinate me. Um, after the service, you can try this, but 
We actually have in the stained glass in the back of the room, on the bottom of all of those four big, uh, five bigger wind windows, there are the living creatures back there. Okay, it shows you there's one that looks like a dude, there's one that looks like an ox, there's one that looks like an eagle, and there's one that looks like a lion. So when you see that kind of stuff in stained glass, now you know what they're referring to. Okay, and then you have the four gospel writers above them, you got Jesus in the middle. These living creatures are fascinating to me because they're covered in eyes. That's kind of weird, right? So uh, I want you to all do something with me. It's a, it's a little silly. All right. I want you to cover one eye. If you have glasses, you can take them off if you need to. Cover one eye. Can you see? Right, you can still see. I mean, I can see with one eye. Uh, I don't have my glasses on. I don't have my contacts, so it's a little blurry. But... uh. I can see with one eye. Now, what if you had to go around like this all day, though? If all day long you had to operate with one eye, could you function? Probably. Now, uncover that eye and use... Is it better with two? With, you actually, with, with two functioning eyes, you gain something called depth perception. If you ever lost an eye, you would find that your depth perception really suffers. You'd be able to see everything. You can see colors. You can see shapes. But you might not know how close something is to you. It's the second eye that gives you depth perception. So imagine being covered in eyes. How deep you could look into God. And, and what you could perceive and what you could see. You know, like Two eyes helps us see better than one eye. Imagine being covered in eyes. What you could actually take in. The, the nuances and the colors and the, and the movements and like, and then they're completely covered in eyes. These creatures were created for one purpose, to look at God. That's their purpose. And if you read through like all the encounters that people have in the Bible with God, they see God and then a lot of them just fall down, dead almost, or like they're dead. I mean, Isaiah, when he saw God, he said, I'm dead. John, who wrote this, fell down on the ground. I mean, some of the, some of the uh, people that came to arrest Jesus, when they realized it was Jesus, literally fell down. I mean, this happens, Daniel fell down as if he was dead. This happens all throughout Scripture. People see God and they get overwhelmed. It's too much input for our brains to handle. We get overwhelmed. We kind of shut down. Imagine not being able to look away from God because your whole body is covered in eyes. I mean, if I, if I don't want to see something, I can just go, ah, oh, crap, the rest of my body is covered in eyes. So I turn my back on it, and I, now my back is looking at God. You know, like, there's no escape. I say that tongue-in-cheek. There's no escape for them. They are looking at God with their whole being all the time, and they're, they're responding with this statement, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now, I don't think that they grew up, that these four living creatures grew up going to like children's church learning this song. I don't think anyone was coaching them along in this song. I think that was the gut reaction that came out of them when they saw God. You know, like... This morning, today is our daughter's birthday. This morning we gave her a gift. She got a baby doll, which is what it's called in the rest of America, not a doll baby, as you Philadelphians call it. 
we gave her a baby doll. It was her first one. And we, you know, we did not have to coach her how to react. We didn't have to say, now, Emma, when you get a present, you're supposed to go, oh, yay. We didn't have to do that. We gave her the gift, and she immediately, her face lit up. She started going, baby, 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 which is exactly what Kendra says to me most days. And it just came out of her naturally. Do you understand the difference between like the natural, organic, just gut reaction versus a coached, learned reaction? This is the gut reaction. There is no script that they're reading. No one's telling them this is the song that they're supposed to be singing. This is just what comes out of them. Uh, Matt Redman defines worship or describes worship as our heart responding to God's revelation. The way we respond to God is worship. And sometimes we respond well and sometimes we respond poorly. But this is their gut reaction. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They were not coached in this. It just, it just spilled out of them naturally. All right, go to the next slide for me, Nate. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So here's another statement. So now we've had three statements here from Isaiah, Revelation 4 earlier, and now Revelation 4 again. Three different times where the Bible tells us what's being said about God in heaven. Those might be three statements that would be good to work into your personal time with God in worship. You know, those are good statements for us to sing ourselves when we sing on Sunday mornings and Sunday afternoons together. I just want to point, aside from that, I want to point, I think, one thing out from this chunk of scripture. The 24 elders start to worship God in response to seeing the living creatures worship God. It's the worship of the four living creatures, those weird looking things with the eyes. It's their worship that provokes the 24 elders to then worship. And I think that when you worship God, it has a, a power to provoke or inspire other people to worship God. That when people see you falling in love with God, it can, not always, but it can have that kind of effect on other people that they begin to worship God. And it says the 24 elders fell down and they took their crowns off and cast them, so threw them, uh, at the throne. And then they shouted this. Now I want to, I was asking you to, you know, picture this in your mind's eye. I want to show you two pictures. Just, these are just really simple artist renditions of this. Uh, they're probably not accurate. It's the best that a human can do. This one, uh, you know, this is a picture of the scene from Revelation 4. Again, this is, does, does no justice to this, but I just think for those of you that are visual, it might be, it might be helpful to, to, to see this. So you got like lightning at the, and thunder down at the bottom of the foundation. We, it says that there was trembling in the foundations and lightning and thunder. You have 24 elders circling around, bowing down. You see their thrones behind them. You have these four living creatures here. Um, you got your emerald rainbow here, uh, sea of glass, then a throne. And I like that in this picture, 
they don't personify God. He's just a big glowing area. Because I think sometimes when we put a when we try to draw God, we just limit him. He'll never capture God in an image. So I think it's actually better. Let's just kind of leave it mysterious. Uh, go to the next picture for me, Nate. Thank you. This is you know another artist's idea of it. You have your uh, 24 elders sitting on their thrones. Uh, you got your four living creatures down here. You got your rainbow kind of emanating out. You got your seven uh, lamps here. And then again, they don't personify God. They just kind of leave it a mystery. Just kind of light emanating out. Now, you know, I don't know how accurate these are. I don't think it really matters. I'm not trying to tell you it's going to look exactly like this. I just think for those of you that need to see these kind of things, this is just a tip of the iceberg idea to get your, your mind grapes going. Um, so I love this passage in Revelation 4. I just want to leave you with three things really quick about uh, anointed worship, throne room worship in particular. If you read these songs that come from the throne room, they are t sung to Jesus and about Jesus. I think that's important to remember because not every song we sing in church is sung to Jesus or about Jesus. Sometimes we just sing songs that sound like could be a love song to our girlfriend. We slap Jesus in there somewhere. Um, I'm saying that everybody does that. But these songs are to Jesus and about Jesus. Uh, specifically. And they can only be sung to Jesus. You start singing like, you created the world. That can only be sung to God. There's no one else that that can be sung to, right? You know, you... Worthy is the Lamb. That can only be sung about Jesus. There's no one else that that can be sung to. So, anointed worship songs are sung to Jesus, about Jesus. You're basically telling him what you love about him. It's like when I sit down and tell my wife what I love about her, which I will do some other time, not in front of all these people. Anointed worship comes from your spirit, engages your soul, and moves your body. This is, I could probably go two whole days on this, but I won't. I'll just leave it at this. Your spirit and your soul are not the same thing. Every one of you has a spirit and has a soul and has a body. I should probably say that every one of you is a spirit with a soul in a body. You, usually we look at our body as our identity, but truly your identity is your spirit that is in a body your body's going to die anyway. So you have a spirit. It, that is your, the essence of your being is your spirit. And if you're a Christian, your spirit has been born again. You know that when uh, Jesus told Nicodemus to be born again, he wasn't talking about your physical body, right? Otherwise, I'd be the biggest baby in America. He wasn't talking about physically. He's saying spiritually. You have to be born again. You're, every, every human being since the fall of Adam has been born with a dead spirit. Jesus, through being born again, makes your spirit alive. Your soul is different than your spirit. Your soul are your emotions and your thoughts. It's different than your spirit. Your body, you guys all know what your body is, right? So 
anointed worship starts in your spirit where you connect with God in the deepest place. Paul sometimes would call it the inner man, your inner man, or if you're a woman, your inner woman. If you're a dude, you don't have an inner woman. If you're a woman, you don't have an inner man. But it starts deep, and then it starts in your spirit, and then it engages your emotions. Okay, we don't, We're not interested in worship that's emotionless. We want your emotions to be engaged in worship. I also don't want your emotions to be at the steering wheel during worship. Because that's unreliable at best. All of us have unreliable emotions. But your, your spirit should grab hold of your emotions and say, listen to me, we're singing to God right now. And then once that happens, your body gets involved. And that does not have to, be, it might mean a little bit of jumping around, it might mean clapping, it might mean raising hands, it might mean kneeling. At the very least, you've got to open your mouth. Even just making noise is, is your body being involved. I mean, this is kind of how it can go. In the midst of worship, your spirit responds to God, and it, your spirit responds to God, and maybe in a way that fills your emotions, now your soul, with joy. And maybe that joy causes you to sing or raise your hands or cry. All of those are responses from your body. And so anointed worship gets all three involved, your spirit, your soul, and your body. And I'll tell you this, it usually doesn't work from the outside in. You can't clap yourself into a revival, all right? Uh, you, usually it's got to be from the inside out. There's got to be a real connection to God that works its way out. And for the most part, it's impossible to know, so you just have to trust people. Finally, anointed worship seems to influence the activity of heaven. Uh, while, I wrap, while I wrap this up, can the worship team come up? All right, anointed worship seems to influence the activity of heaven. I don't think you can change God with your worship, but I do think you can get angels moving with your worship. Because the way they worshiped in Revelation, it, it charged the... the the angelic activity. Uh, it didn't get God off the throne or it didn't make God clap or stomp his feet or anything like that. But the way that the four living creatures worshipped got the 24 elders to do something. Is that, you understand that? So when we worship, it creates heavenly activity. I think it gets the eight... When the, the, God doesn't change when we pray, but he gets the angels moving to carry out his will. And so there is a change, there's activity there, and so we want to worship in response to this idea. Um, I asked the team, I asked Ruby specifically, to find a song that has to do with throne room worship, and she picked the absolute best song that could be picked. I didn't ask her to do this one, but she just is that, she's on point. So uh, we're singing... Um, storm all around you, right? Right? That's what it's called. Uh, so I'm going to ask you guys to stand and I will say I'm not interested in getting a, a specific response from you. You don't have to clap to make this matter. You don't have to cry. I want, I'm really interested in like an internal change. Now, if that leads to external expression, that's great. But I'm not interested in faking a response. I really want our philosophy of worship to be based around the throne room of God.
just continue to practice some of this. I'm going to read from Revelation 15. This is the same passage Jason Davis read at the beginning. But I want to ask, if you want to go look through Revelation 4, also Revelation 5, Isaiah 6, find some of these biblical psalms that are sung to God, the psalms. Some, you might know some of them off your head or off the top of your head. You might be able to find them. Or you might know him from memory. I just want to—I want to wrap up, stating back to God and loving Him the way He wants to be loved, the way He said to worship Him. Lord, great and marvelous are Your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Right, righteous and true are Your ways, 
King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Anyone else that has like something from scripture or inspired by, go ahead and, and shout it out. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give a feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you. All will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Would you teach us how you want to be loved and how you want to be worshipped? Would you fill, fill our minds with scripture so that we can say back to you the things that you want to hear? We want to worship you on your terms, not ours. And I pray, Lord, that you would always be pleased with what we offer you. There would we would never get to the point where you tell us you've got to shut it down. We want to enter into that throne room type of worship where we're singing to you, about you, things that can only be said of you. And Lord, we want this to be a lifestyle seven days a week. When we get a moment in the car or in the house or at work, 
we would respond to your revelation with worship, Lord. Fill our hearts with worship so that it comes out of our mouths. Make us a worshiping people, Jesus. Everything we've prayed today, we pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Again, let me remind you.